We've been considering a book of the Bible which is very strange to many. It's a book of the Bible about which there have been many disagreements. It's a book of the Bible about which controversy has raged. It's the book of Revelation. But one of the things I want to remind us of as we again approach this book today is that in the, in the midst of all of the figurative language and the visions that are seen by the Apostle John and all of this, that there are several things that we can all agree on and we ought to agree on, even if we end up disagreeing about some of the minor details. This is a book which exalts Jesus Christ. It shows Christ as the Lamb slain who now reigns and rules and carries out the sovereign purposes of God. This is a book which is given to believers who are facing persecution to encourage them that things are not as they seem. That in the end, we win because Christ has already won. He has the victory. This is a book which is given to embattled and beleaguered believers in order to challenge them, encourage them to overcome. Keep fighting. Don't give in. And don't be surprised when you face persecution in this life because it is part of God's plan to sanctify us. Remember, as Vern Poitras has said, that as we approach the book of Revelation, we should see it not so much as a puzzle book, but as a picture book. Not so much as a puzzle book, but a picture book. We get caught up in all the tiny little details, trying to put together all the little pieces of the puzzle, and sometimes we miss the big picture. But if we step back and see these various segments, these various visions, uh, and see them from the big picture, then we can take home the big principles. And those things have great application for our lives. So that's what we've been trying to do. And as we've gone along, I've explained that there have been different views in history regarding how to approach or interpret the book. I, of course, am coming from a certain perspective. I recognize there are other Christians who disagree, and that's okay. That's okay. Now, there's some things that I'm a little more passionate about than, than others regarding what the disagreement is and what level of disagreement we might have, but um, realize that we should approach this book with humility as well. It should humble us because we see God exalted in it. And then we should be humbled because we should recognize that our knowledge is limited as well. So we seek to come together and learn. Today we're going to, going to examine chapter 7 in verses 1 through 8. Revelation 7, 1 through 8. A little context, and then I'll read the passage for us. Jesus Christ has ascended to the throne. He has taken the scroll out of the hand of the one who sits on the throne. He begins to unloose the seals from this scroll, and all types of terrible things begin to happen on the earth. The first four are visions of what we call the riders of the apocalypse, and they go forth. And there is conquering that takes place on the earth. There is social conflict. There is scarcity and famine. There is widespread death. Then the cry of the martyrs and 
They cry out, how long, O Lord, till you avenge our blood? And they're told, just wait. But it won't happen until the exact number that God has determined will die for their faith has been accomplished. Then we saw last week the sixth seal and the cosmic disturbances and the great and final day of God's wrath being proclaimed. And then we get to chapter 7. I do want to pause for just a second. I want to clarify something from last week. As we looked at verses 12 through 17 last week of chapter 6, and it mentioned here a great earthquake, the sun becoming black as sackcloth of hair, the moon become like blood, the stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree, the sky receded as a scroll when it's rolled up, every mountain and island moved out of its place, and then it mentions the kings of the earth and the great men, the rich men, the commanders, All of these people, and they're crying out to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath has come and who is able to stand. I pointed out that these cosmic disturbances, the the sun becoming dark, the moon turning to blood, stars falling to earth, that these things have been used in the Old Testament many times already to symbolize God coming in judgment and massive changes taking place. Empires being brought down. In Isaiah chapter 13, it mentions in judgment of Babylon, the moon becoming dark and the sun becoming dark and these things. So I I was pointing out the symbolic nature of this language Notice it says the stars of heaven fell to earth. You know, if we had one star from heaven smash into the earth, the earth would have been gone and there wouldn't have been any people left to cry out for the rocks and mountains to fall on them. So this is highly symbolic language, you recognize. But I do want to say this, and this is where the clarification comes in. The Bible does teach, though, I believe, that after the resurrection of the dead... All people will be raised from the dead and then the judgment will take place. The unrighteous dead will be cast into the lake of fire. The righteous dead then will inherit with Christ a new heavens and a new earth. And that will be a recreation of an actual material world. Okay, so... I don't believe that it's biblical to have a concept of we're going to live for all eternity in resurrected bodies. Remember, our bodies are going to be fashioned after Jesus' body. He was raised from the dead. He was recognizable. They could touch him. He could eat. He ate honeycomb. He ate fish, right? Our bodies are going to be like his. We're going to have real bodies, but they'll never die. They'll never be corrupted, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But we're not just going to be floating around on clouds playing harps, (laughs) A cartoon idea of of heaven. That's not going to be our eternal existence. But I believe it will be in a real material, although incorruptible, world. Look at 2 Peter. This is where I get support for this. So I just wanted to be clear that even though I believe Revelation had figurative language there, that there is going to be a complete recreation of the cosmos materially. And we'll live in a new heavens, or in a new earth. So, in 2 Peter, and beginning with verse, or chapter 3, 
It says, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder that you be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. And remember, according to the scriptures, we're in the last days. Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days, God has spoken to us through his son. The last, the last days of this last age, this age, the last days of this age began when Christ completed his work. We're in the last days, and we have been for 2,000 years, okay? There will be scoffers come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Where, where is this Jesus that you talk about? It's been 2,000 years since he was on the earth. Where is he? Where's his coming? You see, they're scoffing. Where's his coming? And then, they'll, and then they say, say this as, as evidence. For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. They're like, nothing has changed in the entire world. So you're saying Jesus is coming back. Argument against that, rebuttal. For this they willfully forget. They know this, but they just willfully and conveniently forget to mention this. That by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in the water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water. So what's the counter argument to these scoffers that say the world just continued on forever? No, it was existed in a different form before the flood at Noah's time, but then it was destroyed with a flood at Noah's time. Big change. <laughs> Big change. All right. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Now, notice in the context, it's talking about the material world. Is it not? The material world preserved or reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, do not forget this one thing. That with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. He's on a different timetable than we are. When you're eternal, one day, a thousand years, it's nothing to you. Compared to us human beings, you know, if, if, if we make it to 80, you know, we're doing really well. If we make it to 90, we're doing really well. If we make it to 97, praise the Lord. <laughs> but you, you, for God, it's, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. So he's not slack. He's not slacking off according to his promises. But notice his purpose. He's long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. Why isn't Jesus come back yet? Because God's seeking out his people to call him to repentance. He doesn't want us to go to hell. <laughs> okay, but notice this. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. Now, in the context of 2 Peter, notice we're talking about the material universe. The heavens will pass away with a great noise. The elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. 
Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. All throughout, that's been speaking about the material universe. So the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, there's no need to to spiritualize that at this point. This is talking about the new heavens and new earth. And notice this, it speaks of the day of the Lord. Remember, in Revelation chapter 6, at the end of that, it does speak about the great and final day of God's wrath. So although there are some things figurative there, I think the timing of this is that Christ will come in judgment on that day. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 refers to that day as well. Christ will come in judgment, and as a result of that final judgment, and when, when that has taken place, there will be a recreated heavens and earth in which we'll dwell. And that's a glorious thing to look forward to. You know, we're going to live in a real world. We're going to be able to, uh, implications, we'll be able to travel in that real earth. We'll be able to visit with people, with one another. We have no reason to think that we won't be able to eat. Now, we won't be able to starve to death, praise the Lord. But Jesus ate in his resurrected body. Our bodies are going to be fashioned after his. There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth, a real world. And Jesus speaks about, you will drink with me in my coming and my kingdom. There's going to be the marriage supper of the lamb. Is that just figurative? I think there will be feasting in the new heavens and the new earth. And we will dwell forever there with the Lord. I mean, that, you know, now we're talking about the most glorious things. With the Lord, we'll get to see Jesus. We'll be with the Lord and we'll never sin against him anymore. All of, the, all of our sins in this life, everything will be put behind us. We will live in righteousness from then on. Oh, I, I could preach a whole message on that, but that by way of clarification, we have much to look forward to. So, back toward Revelation then, in our text, chapter 7. And verse 1. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending for the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. The tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After I saw these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth. 
Now, remember again, the book of Revelation, highly symbolic, filled with imagery. This statement, the four corners of the earth, should not inform our cosmology. It's not saying that the earth is a platter and that there are four corners to it. But what do you think is speaking of? Four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth. The points of the compass. North, south, east, west. It's saying the entire earth. The entire earth. So four angels are pictured standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree until something takes place. Until the servants of God are sealed on their foreheads. So as we look at these other seals that have been loosed, And as you see these fiery horses going out and there's conquering that takes place and peace is taken from the earth and people are killing one another with the sword and there's great famine on the earth and widespread death on the earth and the cry of the martyrs and the wicked people crying out in the face of the judgment of God for the mountains to fall on them. The question comes up then in the midst of all of that, what about God's children? I think chapter 7 here is providing an answer. What what about God's children? In in the midst of of all of this, is God looking after them in any way? In the midst of this, even if they go through the suffering and persecution, because remember the cry of the martyrs, it's not that people will be spared from suffering in this life. There are many who will even die for their faith. But is God preserving them? Is God spiritually looking out for them in the midst of all of this that takes place? And I believe the beginning of chapter 7 answers that for us. Verse 3, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. Now, one of the first messages that we looked at from the book of Revelation was regarding the mark of the beast. At that point, I thought that we were just going to do a mini-series in the book, but then decided to go ahead and, and tackle the entire book. And I think a very strong case can be made as we examine these statements about God's servants being marked on their forehead and then those who worship the beast and his image, receiving the mark of the beast, that what you see in the book of Revelation is two groups of people. You have those who are lords and they bear his mark. And you have those who are followers of Satan and they are marked by him. And those who are marked of the Lord's will face the wrath of Satan, but they will overcome. Those who are Satan's ultimately will face the wrath of God and they will be ultimately judged. So, 
Whose side do you want to be on? Whose wrath would you rather face? (laughs) Would you rather have Satan opposing you or God opposing you? Now, remember again, the book of Revelation has over 500 either references or allusions to the Old Testament. So it's steeped in Old Testament imagery. And the Jews who read this in the first century knew that. They knew their Old Testament. They knew it far better than most of us. So we've been going back to the Old Testament a lot. I want to remind us, if you heard that first message, if we go to Ezekiel, and I believe it was chapter 9, In Ezekiel chapter 9, we see the imagery of God's people being marked and being reserved from the wrath of God because of being marked by God as his. So Ezekiel is being given a vision. Remember, in Revelation, John is being given these visions of the things that we are talking about. They're not literally happening in front of him. He is seeing them in a vision. In Ezekiel chapter 9, there's a vision. And it says, Then he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. So Ezekiel, up to this point, has seen the city of Jerusalem in a vision and there have been all kinds of wickedness and atrocities going on in the city. Idol worship going on in the very temple of God. That's what Ezekiel has seen. Spiritual harlotry taking place. And suddenly, in verse 2, six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now again, this is a a vision. And it's mentioned in chapter, the beginning of chapter 8, that this is a vision that he is seeing. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said, my hearing, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. All are to be slain, it concludes, except those who are marked on their foreheads. And who are those? It is those who are repentant. Those who see the wickedness going on around them. And as a result of the grace of God in their lives, Do not join in with that wickedness, but weep over the wickedness. So we get to Revelation and it talks about the servants of God being marked on their foreheads. Now, is this saying that there's a day coming literally where people are going to have Jesus name tattooed right across their pate? Right on the old dome right up here. No, it's, it's figurative. Just like, in, just like in Ezekiel. It's figurative. But what does it represent? That they're marked as gods. They are God's children. They are God's children. And if you go to Revelation 
and chapter 13, you see the other group of people, those who are marked with the mark of the beast and the number of his name. And remember, and I've made this case before, I'm not going to go through all these verses again, that those who, are, who receive this mark are also those who worship the beast and the false image. It's not that there are those who receive the mark but don't bow down and worship the beast. And all those who receive the mark of the beast are cast ultimately into the lake of fire. Okay? So as we apply this practice practically, you don't have to worry as a believer about taking the mark of the beast. It won't happen. <laughs> if you are a child of God, you are marked by God and you will not be marked by the beast because for you to bear that mark, Satan would have to triumph over God and that is not going to happen. Furthermore, I think a strong case can be made that this mark is symbolic in Revelation. It is not a material thing. So if we get worried about barcodes or RFID chips or social security numbers or anything like that, this is in the book of Revelation. This is figurative. Just like we saw the mark on God's people in their foreheads is not speaking about a tattoo across the forehead, but it is figurative as belonging to the Lord. But notice this in verse 8 of chapter 13. All who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Who will worship the beast and the false image that is put up? All those who are not written in God's book as being the Lord's children. And notice what this beast desires to do. Down in verse 15, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. What this is saying is, that wicked governments, institutions, organizations will seek to force God's people to follow them in wickedness by imposing economic hardships or sanctions. One example of this in the first century that these people were familiar with, there were trade guilds. And if you were a stonemason or a carpenter, you could be part of this guild, and they're a little bit like unions would be today. And it was very hard to find work if you were not part of one of these trade guilds. They would push you out if you weren't part of this. Well, those trade guilds in the Roman Empire were steeped in pagan worship. So they would have false gods who were basically the patron of that guild. And if you were going to be part of that guild, you had to burn incense to that false god. So what would happen to Christians? They would say, I'm not going to burn incense to a pagan god. And they'd say, you're out of the guild. 
And then they would try to keep them from getting work as believers. And there have been instances throughout history where this has happened. Even in our most recent history, there are Muslims who convert to Jesus Christ and they are disowned from their families. If they live in a Muslim-dominated nation, they are marginalized, forced out of work, etc., etc. As I've mentioned, we support missionaries in Papua, Indonesia. And Trevor Johnson, one of these missionaries, helped to establish a ministry for women who converted to Christianity and then were kicked out of their families and disowned by their husbands. And as women in this society, and as being converts to Christianity, they couldn't just go to Walmart and fill out a job application. (laughs) And so Trevor helped to connect them with people in the United States and get funds flowing and whatnot so that they could make quilts and then sell them to churches back in the United States. And we have people in our congregation who who have bought quilts from that ministry to help support these women. See, this happens even today around the world, right? But here's what we have. Two groups of people. Satan's people have his mark. God's people are marked as his. You will face the wrath of the leader of the opposing party. Whose side do you wish to be on? We all have a choice. There's no, there's no Switzerland in the spiritual kingdom. There's no neutrality. You've got to join sides. You're on God's side or Satan's side. What did Jesus say? He who is not for me is against me. There's no middle ground. Whose side are you on? And more importantly, has God chosen you, reached out to you, and loved Does he recognize you as his? (laughs) Our identity in Christ because We love him, why? Because he first loved us. Praise be to his name. So, now looking back at our text, here's where just a little bit of the, a little more of the controversy or potential disagreement comes in. And again, remember, we're approaching this with humility. Who does it mention is marked? First of all, it says in verse 3, till we have sealed the servant of God, servants of our God on their foreheads. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel, it says, of all the tribes of the children of Israel. First of all, notice that number, 144,000. Remember, book of Revelation, highly symbolic. The numbers, even, are highly symbolic, okay? It makes sense to me to translate this as being symbolism because of the number that is here, 144,000. 144,000 is 12 times 12 times 10 to the third power, or 12 times 12 times 1,000. Both 10 and 12 are highly significant numbers, in Hebrew numerology. How many patriarchs were there? 
12. How many apostles were there? 12. So I think that there is a representation here of all of God's people in this 144,000. The number 10 signifies the number of completion. So 10 to the third power means perfectly complete. 10 times 10 times 10, or 1,000. And remember, too, the number 144,000. Now, that doesn't seem that large to us in the 21st century. You know, we hear, we hear numbers about, like, our national debt. And how many trillion is it at now? You know, and, and trillion, I'm like, I'm like, trillion. I don't have anything in my common experience to connect that to, you know. I don't, I don't look at me and I look around and say, oh, there's a trillion words in this book. You know, it's not even close to that. But we throw around words like trillion, and we even get bigger than that. It wasn't the case for these folks 2,000 years ago, 144,000 was a massive number. It was, ma- it was massive. And when they heard this, the original readers, remember it was written in a historical context to people originally, and to interpret the word of God properly, we cannot make it mean something that it could not have meant to them. Okay? That's a key principle of how to interpret the scriptures. We cannot make the Bible mean something that it could not have meant to the original hearers. It doesn't mean that there, that there is not application to us in ways it may not have applied to them, because we find principles. But we cannot make it mean something different than it would have meant to them one, one example of how this has been abused in, in uh, so many different ways is that David, King David and the son of Saul, Prince Jonathan, had a very close relationship with one another. They were friends. And in the scriptures at one point, when they're separating from one another because David is having to flee Saul, it says that they embrace one another. And some people have put that in today's context and said, oh, well, they were homosexuals. No, 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 no. You can't make it mean something in today's context that it could not have meant and did not mean in that context. And it absolutely did not mean that in that context, in that original setting and in the context of the scripture there. So that's, that's forcing a context. It's called decontextualizing. It's taking out of its original context and it's forcing a context from the 21st century on it. And even there, that's not a good job of that because, you know, um, guys, we've occasionally given each other a hug around here. (laughs) But we cannot make it mean something that it could not have meant. And the most logical thing that it would have meant as these people read that, they would see, oh, that's number 12 times 12. And then times 1,000 which is 10 times 10 times 10, they, they would have seen that very rapidly, very clearly. So it's a symbolic number. Now, who does it say are sealed here? It says, of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Now, here's where I'm going to 
make a case from the scriptures that this is not referring to ethnic national Israelites, but this is referring to the Israel of God. All of God's people, whether they be Israelites or Gentiles, who are united in Christ and part of the new covenant. Okay? And why why would I even do this as I consider this passage? Well, it says children of Israel, so doesn't that mean and, and mustn't it mean that that's talking about ethnic Israel? Not necessarily, because there are other places in the New Testament which teach, I believe, very directly that God's people now are all those who are united in Christ, who are saved through the work of Jesus in the new covenant, and that we are the recipients of the promises given to Abraham, and we are the spiritual Israel of God. But... Before we look at some of those passages, I want to mention a couple of reasons from this text that I don't think this is speaking about the ethnic people of Israel exclusively. Now, this can definitely include Israelites who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Okay? So, this is not promoting anti-Semitism in the least. I despise anti-Semitism. All people need to believe in Jesus. And it doesn't matter where we're from. And it doesn't matter what our history. We need to believe in Jesus. And God is calling people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to be his. Okay? But from this itself, one, the listing of the tribes given here is listed in an order that is found in no other place in the scriptures. There's a common ordering of the tribes. This is, the, this is a place that is different. And one of the unusual things here is it lists the tribe of Judah first, even though Judah was not the oldest. He was not the firstborn. What might be the significance of the tribe of Judah being listed first here? From what tribe did Jesus come? The tribe of Judah, you see. So I believe Judah is placed in prominence here because that's where Jesus came from. (laughs) The tribe of Judah. Secondly, there are a couple tribes that are left out of this list. Dan is not in this list. And interestingly, it mentions Joseph. And then one of Joseph's sons, Manasseh, but it does not mention the other of Joseph's sons, Ephraim. So I don't think that this is meant to be a literal listing of the tribes. I think it is figuratively speaking about the people of God. Now, another thing that's worth noting here, this one I'm just throwing in, this one will be for free, not placing a whole lot of weight on this argumentation. But notice that it says here, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Now, there, there are some who interpret this as meaning 
literal Israelites and and the the common view, and we've outlined all of this in great detail in other messages, the predominant view of the end times today is called pre-tribulational, premillennialism, or dispensationalism. And it says that the church, because we're in this church age, is going to be secretly raptured out so that God can go back and fulfill the promises made to ethnic Israel. And those who hold that view will say, many of them will say that the number 144,000 is not literal. It's not talking about exactly line them up and count them. One, two, three, four, five, you know, 144,000 Jews, but it's figurative of a large number of Jews. But they'll say these are ethnic Jews because at this point in Revelation, the church has already been raptured out. Now, I don't have time to, to go through all of these systems of eschatology again, but suffice it to say that this text doesn't support the eschatology. You have to have that system of, of interpreting the scriptures in place in order to come up with the idea that the church has already been raptured out at this point. And I think Revelation teaches against that in multiple different ways, and we've already examined that, and we'll continue to examine that as we go. But suffice it to say that there are those, and they're, they're brothers and sisters in the Lord, and I have a lot of respect for them, I just humbly disagree, who say that this is referring to the literal tribes of Israel, and that God will... Preserve for himself during the tribulation period a group of ethnic Israelites and those are whom this is speaking of. But notice it says of the tribe of Judah, of the tribe of Reuben, of the tribe of Gad, and it mentions 12,000, 12,000, 12,000 from each of these tribes. There's a problem. There's a problem. The problem is, not, it's not just that Jews today have no idea what tribe they actually came from, which they don't, because all of their records were destroyed in AD 70, and they don't know what tribes they came from. It's not just that, because one explanation of this would then be, well, even if they don't know, or if we don't know, God knows, and so he'll... Pick them back out. The problem is the tribes aren't pure anymore. Not only, not only do they not know what tribe they're from, there, have, there has been no ability to maintain the purity of the tribes over the past 2,000 years because all of their records were destroyed and everything. And there have been intermarriages between the tribes, etc., etc. So D.A. Carson pointed this out. He said, God doesn't change history. In other words, the tribes have been all scrambled up, and it's not that God is going to supernaturally, miraculously unscramble. God's not changing history in that way. That's already passed. That's already done. Now, God can redeem scrambled up history, but he, he's not going to miraculously go back and somehow there's going to be these pure tribes once again and all of a sudden you're not related to your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather anymore or whatever else, or you never married that person, or they never, you know, how would that even work? God's not going to do that, okay? So just one other thing, one other difficulty of seeing this as some specifically from these each of these tribes as 
being brought forth and preserved during that era. Now, if somebody if somebody's never heard the teaching that has been throughout the history of the church up until recent years predominantly that the New Testament teaches that God's people, whether they be Jews or Gentiles, are the Israel of God, then it might sound like a big stretch to try and prove what I'm proving from this passage. But it's been the case that the vast majority of Christians for the past 2,000 years have looked to the scriptures and have said, the New Testament teaches that all those who are united in Christ, who are saved, who are regenerated, are in the new covenant and they are now blessed with the promises which were originally given to Abraham. Not just the ethnic Jews. And a few of those passages that would indicate that. One one such passage... I think that teaches this in a covenantal context is Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, and it's talking about the promises that have been made to Abraham. It's talking about the, the covenant. Remember, God had met with Abraham. He told Abraham that I will give you this land to you and your descendants after you, that I will be your God. He gave Abraham the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. But he said to Abraham, in you, all the nations will be blessed. And the Apostle Paul here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, gives us a divinely inspired commentary on that promise. Have you ever said, I wish I had a commentary on the Old Testament that would tell me what it means? Anytime the New Testament refers to or comments upon the Old Testament, you have a divinely inspired commentary saying what it means. So I like to look to that commentary and not make up my own commentary. I know it's a little more complex than that in many instances. I'm not trying to oversimplify the issue, but I think it's helpful. That's uh, my son out there, by the way. (laughs) He He may have heard a little bit of This is his first sermon, but uh, anyway, I don't know how much he can hear right now. Listen carefully, son. Galatians 3, verse 5. Therefore, he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness... Therefore, know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. Who are the true sons? Anybody who's an ethnic Israelite? No, only those who are of faith are truly the sons of Abraham. Is that limited only to ethnic Israelites? No, because it says, therefore, know only those of faith. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. 
no matter what nation they're from. What was ultimately the promise made to Abraham about? Was it about Abraham getting a piece of dirt in Palestine? It was about Christ and that Christ would come. So who has fulfilled the Abrahamic covenant? It is fulfilled in Christ, who is, as it goes on to say here, the seed that was promised. Jesus is the one Because he would come from Abraham, through the lineage of Abraham. Jesus is the one, the seed. And now, what this is teaching, all of those of us who are united in Christ, all of those of us who are connected with him in a living and vital relationship, we are the spiritual descendants of Abraham. We inherit the promises made to Abraham because of our relationship with Jesus. It's like it's like somebody gets married and they get married and they agree in that union that they will both own all of the property. So they get married and all of a sudden their identity is connected, is wrapped up in the person that they're married to and they inherit that which their spouse has. We are married to Jesus. We are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8, and we are inheritors of the promises made to Abraham. So one of the evidences that believers have seen in the New Testament throughout the ages is that when it goes on to say here, notice in verse 26, chapter 3, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Now, is that excluding ladies? No, but what is the significance of being a son of God? Inheritance. In the Jewish economy, the sons inherited. Now, we know because it's going to go on to say no male or female, that women who are saved in Christ are equal heirs with men. It's not that one is spiritually inferior to the other in any way, shape, or form, or God loves men more than women. No, 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 not at all. But being a son means being one who inherits. And so we are all called sons because we are given that privilege, whether we're men or women, through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Then you are Abraham's seed. But notice it's saying here that in our relationship with the Lord, It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. But notice it says, then you're heirs according to the promise. And this has been talking about promises made to Abraham. I believe this is saying that now God has expanded his people in the new covenant. And that it's not just ethnic Jews of faith who inherit the promises but Gentiles are brought in and inherit the promises as well. And some 
some take issue with what I'm saying and they'll say no. God promised the physical land to the ethnic Israelites. He scattered them as a result of their disobedience, but he's going to bring them back physically and give them the land again physically as a material land promise. Well, I do believe Romans 9 through 11, not going to go into all that today, that it is possible that it's teaching there that there's going to be a revival amongst the Jews and that there will be many Jews that come to Christ. But as far as the land and issues of the land and, and those types of promises, would it be unfaithful of God to say that all of my people now will ultimately inherit the entire earth? To expand the promise, not to just say one individual ethnicity of people get one little piece of dirt, but to now say, if you are united in me, you will inherit the entire world. And ultimately, that's fulfilled in the new heavens and new earth. But what did Jesus say? The meek will inherit what? The earth. The earth. Okay? So... I don't think that that in any way, shape, or form teaches that God is unfaithful to his promises to expand those promises to include both Jews and Gentiles, you see. Now, one, one other thing that I want to mention right quickly in support of the New Testament teaching that even Gentiles are inheritors of the promises and that if we see in the New Testament where it says Israel, that it doesn't necessarily mean ethnic Israel. And that is in the teaching about the new covenant in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, commenting on passage in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 31, I believe. It's also the new covenant mentioned in the book of Ezekiel. So there was an old covenant God made with the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And it had the laws and the priesthood and all of these things. But did Israel perfectly keep that covenant? No. They broke it. They broke it. They were breaking the precepts of the covenant while the covenant was being made. As Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law and the people are committing sexual immorality down in the valley. And they broke it again and again and again. And God was patient with them and patient with them. And finally he said, no more. But he promised that those who repented and that there would a future day, there would be a future day coming in which he would send his shepherd, he would send his Messiah, and there would be a restoration. And Jesus comes and he says, I am the good shepherd. In Ezekiel, the bad shepherds of Israel were outlined. And it was promised that the, the God would come himself. And Jesus comes as the good shepherd. And God promises there also a new covenant. A new covenant. The book of Hebrews, if you know anything about the book, you know that it is teaching that the new covenant is in place. We're not waiting for the new covenant to happen. The whole book of Hebrews is proclaiming the supremacy of Christ. He's greater than the prophets of old. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. His is the greater tabernacle or temple. 
His is the greatest priesthood. His is the greatest sacrifice. And that all this has come. Has come. It's been inaugurated. The new covenant is here. But what does it say then in referencing this promise of the new covenant? In verse 7 of chapter 8. For if that first covenant had been faultless, the old covenant made at Mount Sinai, no place would have been sought for a second because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of who? Israel and the house of Judah. Now, again, if you know anything about the the book of Hebrews and the new covenant, if you're a Gentile and you're saved, are you part of the new covenant? You better hope that you are. Because Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. He's the high priest of the new covenant. And it's his sacrifice that purifies those who are in the new covenant. And so if you're not in the new covenant, you're hopeless. (laughs) But this says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah after those days in which I will write my law in their hearts and all these promises that are given. Does that mean only ethnic Israelites have the promise of the new covenant? Not at all. But what's being done? Those who are of faith, even if they're Gentiles and are blessed with believing Abraham and connected in Christ, who is our head and who is the mediator of the new covenant, we are Israel and Judah. We inherit the promises of the new covenant. And so, here's an example in scripture where it says Israel and Judah, but it is not just referring to, it's not, the reference here is not at all solely ethnic Israel and Judah. The reference here It's to all those who are in the new covenant, including those from the nations, Gentiles. And so my thinking is this. Sometimes I get real simple in my thinking, and I know it's complex, and I listened to three and a half hours yesterday of guys debating this subject, okay? So I've got all that in my head. But sometimes it's helpful for me to simplify things a little bit. In my thinking, all you have to do is be able to show one place in the New Testament where Israel is mentioned by name, Judah is mentioned by name, etc., where it's not just referring to ethnic Israel and Judah to be able to say there's a precedent in Scripture. And you don't, therefore, say, because it says Israel, it has to mean ethnic Israel across the board. No, all you have to do is have one example in Scripture where it's otherwise, and you can't make that categorical claim. And you can't simplistically say, it says Israel, so it has to be ethnic Israel. You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? And here's one such example. This covenant is not just made with ethnic Israel and Judah. It's made with all those who are spiritually Israel and Judah. Spiritually descendants of Abraham, spiritually inheriting the promises. And so, when it says, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. 
We don't have to interpret that as being ethnic Israel there. And I already gave you reasons from the text itself why I think it's not referring to ethnic Israel. And from the book of Revelation, I believe this is speaking to us. And what what do we take home from from this? I've already mentioned it. I'll, I'll reiterate it by way of application. One, what a blessing that God would bring we who are Gentiles and were not originally given the covenants or the promises that he would bring us in. What a blessing to be a part of the new covenant. What a joy this is. So for us, we worship God and we praise the glory of his name that as a result of Jesus, his son being faithful unto death and then rising from the dead, God says to his son, I give you the nations as an inheritance. God has exalted his son and he's given his son us. Sometimes I'm like, that's not that big a deal. you know. God, you gave me as a, a gift to your son. But what did, what did God do in his mercy? He's showing his mercy. And what, is, what does he tell us? That he has called us his own, his own in order that we would praise him for his mercy. Do you realize why you live? Ultimately, you live to praise Jesus. That's why we're here. So even if we disagree about some of these minor things, remember, we're here to exalt Jesus, to praise Jesus. Secondly, I think it's helpful to to keep these lines clear in the scripture and to understand these things. We don't don't want to fall into the idea that, oh, the, the Jews right now, they're just all blinded. They can't believe in Jesus, but there's a day coming once we're all taken out of the picture that God's going to get back to them. And so we don't really need to be focusing on giving them the gospel right now. And there are some who have gone to extremes with this other view and have done exactly that. And that's That is sad, as well as an abomination. That is sad. We all need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as I was listening to some of these debates the other day, the fact of the matter is that the majority of people in the nation of Israel now, and I guess there's six million or so Jews that live there, that all but a small, small percentage of them are lost. And... Lost, not only lost, but the city of Tel Aviv has the largest population. It is the most prominent city on the face of the earth for homosexuality. And they they need the gospel. They need the light of Jesus to shine in and to point out to them their sin and that they need to repent and embrace Jesus. And so we we don't want to promote anything that would undermine getting the gospel to the Jews. But there have been some in their zeal for this extreme form of theology that's the exact opposite of what I've been proclaiming who have gone in and they've provided funds and material relief and political support and they're trying to get Jews who live around the world to move to the nation of Israel where they believe in their eschatology that there's a day coming when two-thirds of them are all going to be slaughtered viciously. And they're trying to get them all to move back there so God's plan can be put in place. And it's kind of like, okay, that's interesting. And 
They're trying to do all these things, and they literally, and I've heard them say in interviews on the radio, we don't go in and do things like wear Christian t-shirts speaking about Jesus or crosses or anything like that because we're not going in trying to evangelize them. We're just supporting them. Can you imagine the Apostle? The Apostle Paul, I won't use the language the Apostle Paul would use to condemn that. All right? The Apostle Paul went into the synagogues and he said, I'm going to show you from the Old Testament about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I'm going to show you what it was all pointing to, and that is Jesus. And they hated him for it. They whipped him multiple times. They stoned him and left him for dead. They imprisoned him. Everything they could do, they hated him. Why? Because he walked right in there and he told them the most offensive thing that he could possibly tell them, and that is, Jesus is the Messiah. Your people rejected him and you need to believe in him. We need to boldly proclaim that. So one, we're comforted that we're in the new covenant if we're Gentiles today and God has expanded that and glorified his son. Two, not moving toward an extreme position of an opposite view in this. And then, isn't it a comfort, number three, that in the midst of no matter what happens in this world, whether it's in our nation, whether we're in different nations, and remember there are lots of other people besides the United States of America in this world, that no matter what happens and no matter what we face, God is looking after his people. God is looking after his people. And one of the things that we've been emphasizing over and over again in the book of Revelation should should remind us of again and again is not only it's not only the case that we are not the only people in the world right now here in the United States of America but the United States of America in the 21st century is not all of human history not even close and we tend to interpret as Americans we tend to interpret even the bible from an American perspective. Things like, things like when I was talking about the mark of the beast. And I read an article from this group online that makes it their, their ministry to try and tell people the social security number is the mark of the beast. And they go to a document in the IRS in the United States of America to prove that our social security number is the mark of the beast. How many countries are there on the face of the earth? What did somebody tell me? 300 plus countries on the face of the earth? 196. Okay, 196. Almost 200 countries on the face of the earth. We're one of those. There are countries that don't have social security numbers. Canada, as a matter of fact, used to have a national identification number and then they voted to remove it because they said it was an infringement on public or on privacy. So they got rid of it. So you see, interpreting it from only the United States perspective and it's got to be our number, that is myopic. It is, it is narrow. It's not seeing the big picture, okay? You know, we're all about America. We're all about us. There are people right now around this globe who have fellowship with us and are marked as God's children. It's not just us. 
Let's keep our, our focus broad and praise God. He's looking after every one of his children around the world, no matter what age that they're in. And the events that happen in this world, they, they affect all of us. It's not just about the United States. But... So, we can praise God. and We're going to transition to the Lord's table, and Brother Rick is going to officiate that for us. Just very briefly tying a thought into the sermon. This, this table is for those who are marked as the Lord's. Because we are to proclaim his death until he comes. We are united in him. And we can do it with joy, can't we? If we belong to the Lord. Brother Rick, would you?